0: This episode's guest is Stu McMillan. Stu is the CEO and short sprints coach at Altus. Stu has worked with professional and amateur athletes in a variety of sports with a focus on power and speed development, and he has personally coached over 70 Olympians at nine Olympic Games, winning over 30 Olympic medals. On this episode, Stu and I discussed a lot of topics. I asked, what was it like moving from the UK to Canada when Stu was 12. Where is Stu currently with his training system and model for short sprinters? How does Stu measure what matters within his training system? Stu shares his thoughts on force velocity and load velocity profiling. Stu talks about effectiveness versus efficiency. I asked Stu, when is it appropriate to try and change technique? I asked Stu to discuss the utilization of potentiation days and how he currently designs his microcycles. Stu gives us his take on timing all sprints during the training process. I asked Stu for his current thoughts on Franz Bosch's concepts. I asked Stu about the thought process of needing to always sprint maximally to get faster. I asked Stu the difference between acceleration development for field-based athletes versus sprinters. I asked Stu where did he get his love for music and coffee from? And finally, I asked Stu if he could learn from three individuals for a week, who would he choose and why? Guys, this was a brilliant conversation with Stu, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Okay, Stu, we've finally made this happen. It's been many years in the making thanks so much for finally giving me some of your time
1: Robbie I don't think uh, when we first started about or talking about doing a pod I don't think I'd done any pods at that point no so when would that have been 17
0: (laughs) yeah 2017 yeah I was very disappointed when I was in your your first podcast I have to say (laughs) but at the time you were so anti coming on a podcast i was actually shocked and then like when i seen on subsequent podcasts but in a way i was delighted to because man you've so much offer the world and in many respects not just coaching so but i'm delighted we finally made it happen
1: yeah i was very anti-doing pods that's why i didn't do any for the longest time i can't remember which one of the first one i did but it's uh yeah i just wasn't it just wasn't interesting to me i really enjoyed listening to podcasts, but I, you know, the last thing I want to do is listen to myself doing a podcast, but um yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been good. And I'm, yeah, it's uh, apologies that we couldn't make this happen earlier, but looking forward to finally getting it cracking and having a good conversation as we've had many over the
0: years. Yeah. Big time. Um, So I said, before we hopped on, I, I don't want to rehash certain questions you've been asked numerous times on other podcasts like delve in too deep say into your background or your mentors because one I can link those in the show notes and no doubt we're going to mention the people who have influenced you in some way um there is one question though, just about your background just me this is kind of my own selfish um my own selfish question so you moved from the UK to Canada at 12 and I'm just so interested to know like how do do you remember like you like like, how did you process that? Because that's a huge move for anyone at any age, but at twelve, like, to just leave one side of the world and go to the other. Now, fair enough, it was the same language and all that, but massive, though. Like, how how did that shape you?
1: Yeah, well, how did how did it shaped me and how I um, reacted to it? Probably two different things. It shaped me in in probably all sorts of positive ways. How I reacted to it was all sort of all sorts of negative ways. You know, it's um that's a tricky tricky age. You know when you've you've been living in one country for so long, you've got your you know circle of friends. And I was just moving into uh, uh, you know grammar school from primary school. I I got into this really prestigious school, Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, and I was really looking forward to doing that. And then uh, you know the folks sat me down and said, "We're moving to Calgary, the other side of the world," and that was uh, pretty devastating. It was a really hard sort of first year, to be honest with you. I was. Um, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to move. And then when I finally got there, it was just this really flat, big, open cowboy town, didn't have any friends, you know, spoke funny, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it was really, really challenging for me for a while, but long term, how it shaped me was significantly better. I mean, it's, it's, this was 1981 and in the 80s in the uk um anybody at a certain age would understand this isn't wasn't a great place to go up uh all sorts of financial uh um, constraints going on with much much of the population at that time and uh you know moving to canada and um at, at, which enabled sort of the lifestyle that led to what i do now you know like a, especially in based in calgary in the rocky mountains you know and just being outside all the time you know playing all sorts of different sports and and uh you know that that led to a really rich uh, teenage years and then um which led me into you know a greater appreciation for health and wellness and 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 sport and that eventually led me into doing what i do today right so it's, it's a you know long term looking back at it yeah it was really really tough at the time but what I wouldn't be who I am today and where I am today without doing that move. So I really appreciate, We you know, it's something I talked to my parents about quite a bit these days, right? Because that's such a hard decision for them to make, you know, 1981. So my father would have been what, 32, 33, you know, and you've got a young family, you know, I was, I was 11 or 12. My My sister was eight or nine. And moving across the world to a country where there's no support system, there's no support network, there's no other family there. It's just us, and then we're going to spend the you know the rest of our lives there, kind of by ourselves. That's a what a decision to make as a, as a 30 to 32 year old, right? Move a young family across the world like that. So it's I really appreciate that, and uh, it's 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 given me you know perspective on things that I probably wouldn't have um, you know earlier in my life.
0: Cause your your dad like was really young even like 32 like i'm 30 going 36 so when you man that uh, even for your dad at 32 but no i appreciate that answer because um just listening to some of the podcasts you've been on like that that struck me as obviously a you know a, a, a big moment in your life you know it's such a huge move like again at 12 years of age so no doubt it was a a big um a big moment that shaped you <laughs> it's funny though how it shaped you and how you reacted i, I like that um, it, was,
1: it was the only thing I knew about Calgary at the time was the Calgary Stampede. And, you know, you, you know, you think cowboys and horses and Indians and, uh and Buffalo and, you know, those sort of things. Right. I thought I was moving to this wild West town and I thought the Calgary Stampede was all right. We all, you know, stand outside of our, of the saloon and watch all the horses and Buffalo run through town. Like that's you know, legit what I thought. And uh, you know, I moved to a, to a city that I think at the time there was like five or five or six hundred thousand people there. I think it's well it's well over a million now, but it was a much bigger city than what I than what I thought I was getting into. Right, I, I just thought it was just going to be. I was moving back in time, you know, one hundred and fifty years into the Wild
0: West. So, again, we could we could delve into many many topics, me and you. I mean, if we had the time and and motivation and the the desire we could spend hours going many avenues life music everything within the universe basically but i, I kind of want to center today's conversation on where are you currently at with your coaching so where are you currently at with your coaching model your system um i know you're a very deep thinker when it comes to comes to this this whole sort of concept of performance and, and working with your athletes so I suppose maybe just to give it a little more of a of a framework. Say now I'm a I'm a short sprinter and I come to you today in Atlanta. What's the process now? And what's your kind of global thinking of of the training process of of short sprinters?
1: Yeah. Um, zooming out a little bit to the first part of your question, where am I at? I mean, I feel like the 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 coaching process as well as the learning process process, in general, is just one of continually trying to figure out what matters, and then how to measure it, and then how to change it. And that's, that's ongoing, isn't it? I mean, we we never leave that process. So it's, um, you know, that's, that's the same now as it was 10 years ago, and 20 years ago, you know, the answers to the question, you know, what matters and how to measure what matters and how to change what matters, those change over time. But the process is still the same. You know, so it's 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 always about that, and I, f- I feel as I get older and older and older, I'm getting better at answering the first part of that question: what matters. And um, and maybe the second and third part becomes it's either the same or becomes more challenging for me. Um, but I definitely I feel like i have I'm doing a better job of understanding what matters, where I'm diluting things, you know, and synthesizing things, you you know, you've heard me talk about this before, right, you spend sort of the first third or half of your career, you know, analyzing everything and adding more and more and more stuff to your big system. And then you spend the, you know, the, the middle third or the second half of your career kind of throwing it away. And then, you know, really focusing on that, you know, that basic stuff that matters the most. And I feel like that's what it is now. And that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily add new stuff to that mix. You know, I'm continually doing that as I'm learning more, and we learn more about all of the rest of the world and how it how that matters too. But it's uh, on a, on a big picture scale. I feel like, you know, it's 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 simplifying the system. It's going from a system that has you know multiple uh, component parts all interacting in ways that we don't really truly understand, and then we have a real big complex system to one that we can um probably predict a little bit easier so big picture that's that's sort of how i look at it um, you know what do i do on a on a you know if if, an, if a new athlete came to me today what the, what does that process look like um it's you know i think the first question that we have to ask ourselves as coaches is what makes the athlete good at what they do and we that starts the process so you know that that um is Um, you know, we determine the answer to that through multiple different means, you know, one being just a conversation, uh, number two, watching, and number three, sort of testing. Uh, And that might take us two, three, four, six weeks to start to better understand what it is that makes the athlete good. What is the unique ability? What is, why is this athlete even here today doing what they do? Why, Why are they doing it? And then once we understand the answers to those questions, we can start putting together you know, the organization of a program around uh, what what are we working towards here and what are we doing?
0: Just with regards to measuring what matters, how do you currently go about that? Because I I know with conversations with you guys at Altus, with yourself or even with Dan over the years, you know, the, the sort of like, the traditional sort of method was like, we'll do all this testing on the front end. But then that had a lot of, flaws in it because of you know certain people where they were at you know dan will talk about you know the chemistry of the body and where they're you know you wouldn't get very reliable initial data so he was like i tested then midway through cycle or towards ends of cycles or then i just observed and collected over a while so just in regards of measuring what matters with an individual like what's your process for that
1: yeah it, it's it's the same right i mean is this is where i feel like the um the industry is becoming a little bit overly complex to the point where they don't understand what all these metrics and measurements mean in context with all of the other metrics and measurements that they're taking. And I think, you know, that's that same process that you do. We have to figure out what matters of all of the measurements and metrics that we do measure, right? Um, and that's that comes with experience. It really does. I mean, we, you know, the, the Dan's there, you know, he kind of, he kind of knows what matters at this point. And that doesn't mean, as I said, that we don't add new things as new technologies become available. But, you know, we do a good job of synthesizing all of that stuff that does matter to to a small amount of things. So, you know, big, zooming out a little bit from that, you know, there's this subjective ways of understanding what matters and subjective ways of measuring things. And there's objective ways qualitative and quantitative. Um, You know, the the industry, as we've seen over the course of the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, has become more and more obsessed with the objective uh, quantitative and a little bit less obsessed with the subjective qualitative. And I feel like the the longer you've been doing this, the longer, the more expertise you have, the more respect you do have for the qualitative and the subjective, Um, because it is such a big complex puzzle. And it's not a one plus one equals two. So this is a complex system where one plus one could equal three or one plus one could equal one. So it's 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 um it's a respect for all of it. And then it's just a matter of when new technologies or new ways of measuring, maybe even new things, become available. Is you know, the expertise and the experience may give you an understanding of how this does fit into in context with all of the other parts in your system. So it's um yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Robbie, but it's, it's um, you, know, I, you know, you give the example of, of of the Nord Board, for example, right? And all the great research that came out of um, of Australia starting in 2014-15 on Nordics. So, okay, this is really interesting. And, you know, you've got two options there. Okay, this now becomes one of the KPIs of our system. We're going to measure eccentric uh, posterior chain strength through the Nord board. And we're going to do that twice a week. And then that's going to be a KPI for us. Or we're going to see how this fits in with the system. And then over the course of time, try to understand whether it is an important part of the system is whether it is a KPI or whether it's just something that we're already measuring in another way. And it's just adding uh, complexity to it. Now that's, you know, there's no right, right or wrong answer on that. And, and, and for some people, it's a, uh, it's a positive KPI that, that that gives them better defined measurements to make decisions based on and others, it's just adding complexity and it's just adding, then, you know, you've got a more complex system and you're in more confusion and less ability to predict. So it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's just better understanding. As I said, when we do add new metrics and there's new technology coming into the system every single day into the industry, every single day, we've got to understand how it fits in context and be really careful with how we introduce increasing complexity into the system. Increasing complexity requires us to be more expert. (laughs) And, uh, you know, generally I'm trying to go the opposite way. I'm trying to, I'm trying to build less complex systems, not more complex systems.
0: When I was internet at Altus, the concepts of force velocity profiling was only kind of becoming a little more well-known with JB's research. And then, Subsequent to that, now this this low velocity profile is also starting to gain a popularity with like the the 1080 sprints and and other types of sort of loaded sprinting. But what are your thoughts on force velocity and load velocity profiling?
1: Yeah, I mean, what is profiling?
0: Whatever, whatever that whatever that word means like to you. Is,
1: like this is what I kind of find funny about this. Like profiling is coaching. You're trying to figure out the profile of the player or the athlete and we train them according to their profile. So it's just, you know, this force velocity and load, load velocity and all these things that, that different technologies are doing, it's just coaching. It's just it's, it's just coming up with information or not even information, it's coming up with data to help us make decisions and inform what we do with the athletes and with the players. It's just another way of doing it. It's just, as I said, it's just an objective, quantifiable metric that we can use to help inform what we do. That's it. You know, it, it's, it's that, and that, that's, that goes back decades and decades. It's, this isn't, isn't a new thing. You know, it's just, a it's, it's okay. This new thing or this thing, this force velocity profile, let's say you use or load velocity and we use the, the 1080. Is this something that I understand in context with all the other things in my system that can help inform what I do? And if it is great, let's use it. And if it's not, then we don't use it yet until we until we can answer affirmatively to that question. So it's, it's you know, for me, I don't use it. I don't use force velocity profiling in my program in that sense, in the way in which uh, it's been studied by either JB or, 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 or you know, Halati or others, you know, that's, that's not the way I use that. I use the 1080, I use different loads, I use different velocities and I may categorize different athletes in different ways based upon the profile that I see in, you know, other qualitative or quantitative ways but I don't use it the way that they use it that doesn't doesn't mean that I'm you know being less scientific or more scientific it doesn't mean that that's that way of doing it is right or wrong it just doesn't fit within the way that I do it currently so it's um yeah it's I I just find that it's it's a bit um yeah not 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 strange because it's it's like uh, the whole profiling thing is just coaching as I said you know, it's just, all right, well, that's, that is the process. Like it, it's, we are trying to figure out what this athlete is. We're trying to figure out what the sport requires. And we're trying to figure out what the gap is between what this athlete is and what the sport requires, and then train them, train that gap. That's coaching. And that's also profiling. That's the, the one and the same, you know what I mean? And there's multiple, many different ways of doing that and it's um yeah I think we just get caught up a little bit in 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 sort of sometimes fancy terms and some fans fancy technologies and 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 we we lose sight of the bigger picture here of what where as I said where it fits in the in, in the context of everything or our entire the function and purpose of the system as a whole no, that's
0: a good answer. it's good answers fair enough there's more we could add to that but that's that's a fairly sufficient answer for what, what I was asking there because I do have other stuff I want you to delve into one thing that you speak about or how spoken about in the past and not uh, not too distant past this concept of effective versus efficient which you know i um i really liked your thinking around that and just from my own sort of perspective to making sure that i understood you correctly on that could you just get into this th- these concepts of effective and efficient
1: yeah it, this is something i'm continuing to work on and continuing to f- try to find better ways to communicate um, and that's, for me, that's one of my greatest challenges at this point in my career now is is doing a better job of synthesizing things such that they can be easier for me to communicate and easier for people to understand in ways that are still um, accurate to what I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> It's it's one it's one thing to have all this stuff in your brain. It's another thing to be able to communicate in ways that people can understand. As you as, as you know, right? Because you have that same sort of brain, um, you know. And sometimes there's a gap between the brain and the mouth, and then the, another gap between the mouth and someone else's brain. So it's uh, this is this is something that is a work in progress for me. Still, uh, it's it's um, it's based on a few kind of key concepts or key heuristics that we uh, that define sort of our thoughts on things uh, if you zoom all the way back the key, key concept number 1 in that would be that health and performance are reciprocal they're not divergent they exist on a mutually interdependent continuum um you know we 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 often treat them as separate entities but when we do we're not maximizing the development of either of those entities right it's it's the same it's the same same thing and then the quality of the performance and the and the quality of health is contingent upon the quality of the movement now that seems like and it may sound like it's um obvious to many of us but it's not you know and if we if we actually follow the the scientific evidence that's that's a somewhat controversial topic still you know quality of performance is contingent upon the quality of movement and um you know I, I, I could still have lots of really interesting conversations about that. I'm nowhere near uh, having a a solidified understanding of the complexity of that statement. But I think it's, I I think it's from my perspective, a solid heuristic to base, um, you know, methodologies upon. So it's something that I've put into sort of the way in which we think about things. Um, Third is, and we talk about this a lot, is, is, um, optimal movement or correct movement and we often as coaches have a a model in our mind of what is optimal or what is correct or what is perfect but it's and, it, and it's based on a bit of a fallacy right because there's no such thing optimal doesn't exist most correct doesn't exist Perfect doesn't exist well it does but it's only a model and it only exists in mathematics it doesn't exist in a human biological complex adaptive system because we all are complex adaptive systems we are not mathematical models so that leads you to so then if if optimal movement doesn't exist what are we looking for well we're looking for more effective and more efficient and the way in which i Sort of define that, and it's, it's you know that, that could lead us down another whole rabbit hole because I'm not trying to bring my own definitions to this, um, but the way in which I've sort of synthesized all of the information out there around these two terms is effective, is essentially um, as it relates to a biomechanical first principles model. That is, there is a there is a most effective way of doing a thing, whatever that thing is, let's say sprinting, there is a most effective model for sprinting. However, that most effective model isn't available to anyone because we're all, none of us are models. We're all humans. We're all complex adaptive systems. And that's where efficiency comes in. Efficiency is is, is in effect the path of least resistance. We will all move in our most efficient way to solve whatever task it is that we're trying to solve so if it's sprinting we're trying to run down the track as fast as we can and if we're not thinking about it we're running as fast as we can we don't we're not filling our head with all of these nonsensical cues then efficiency is maximized effectiveness may not be maximized we may be all backside. We may be over over flex, We may not have sufficient knee drive to be able to apply force as hard as we possibly can in the right direction, in the right in the right time, and so on and so forth. Those all of those things speak to the effectiveness of the way in which we sprint. But if we just sprint and we don't think about, we revert to our method or our or or our um, path of least resistance, which is our most efficient way to do things. Right. So that's. um. And obviously the best athletes in any sport, in any task, in any movement are both. They're really effective from a biomechanical first principles perspective. They look great and they're doing all the, all the things that really matter in the right way and they're all really efficient. So, you know, one way we, we talk about this when we're sprinting, right. Is, is we, we, we look at movement as the shapes that you create in space So we could just, they're just frames, right? So in sprinting, let's say toe off and touchdown, and those are frames. And that we can define the effectiveness of the movement by looking at the shapes. And those are really important. It's important to to create good shapes in space. And most of the best athletes create really, really good looking shapes and really, really solid shapes. And we can look at the kinematics and the kinetics that, that are derived from those shapes and measure them in really simple ways and that's that's kind of what we've done in in sports biomechanics for a long time right we look at different shapes and we measure their kinetics and kinematics um uh or we measure the kinetics and the further kinematics um over the course of of whatever it is how we're studying it but what it what shapes don't tell us really is the efficiency is how we move between those shapes in space and time and that's the pattern or the movement pattern or the coordination pattern right that's the efficiency of the movement now shapes are important but what really separates great movers from good movers or good movers from you know, not so good movements is how those shapes are connected in space and times how efficient they are how fluid they are you know how coordinated they are right that's always it's the best movers regardless of the sport are the most efficient the most fluid so that's that's for me, that's the what we're that's our goal, right? And, and I feel like so often, and for so long in coaching, we have focused on effective, the shapes that we create at the expense of efficient. And there's a few reasons for that. It's to, you know, it's really easy to identify shapes. And this shape is better shape than that shape. You know, Look at squatting shapes. Okay, that's a better squat shape. That's a better deadlift shape. That's a better power clean shape. It's much, much harder for us as coaches to identify an effective, efficient pattern. How, the, how those shapes are connected in space and time. That's hard. It's hard for coaches, but it's also really hard for the sports science community. It's been really hard for the sports science community to measure coordination, yeah, we're figuring it out now, right? Over the last sort of five, 10, 15 years, are starting. There's a lot of really good research being done in in say sprint biomechanics on coordination patterns. But that's still it's brand new. I mean, the, you know, the, the shapes looking at um, you know, um, studying shapes, sports science shapes or, or sprinting shapes, that goes back decades. We know that stuff really well. So that in that kind of informs how we coach. Um, and it's it's much more difficult to look at efficiencies. So it's um Yeah, that's that's kind of how I look at the difference between the two, you know, um, effective is biomechanical first principles. So in sprinting, does the athlete hit hard? Does he hit quickly? Does he hit in the right direction? You know, efficiency, that's the path of least resistance. Now, can he do those things and be really smooth in a way do the can they sprint in a way that doesn't look like they're force forcing it? Is it really rhythmical? Is it really efficient? And then that that speaks to the, the entire quality of the movement. I not know if that was a bit of a ramble or a bit of a rant, but that's uh that's kind of the
0: way I put it in my in my brain. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. It it um it, it definitely stimulated more thought of um of, of my own with regards to 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 this concept of effective and efficient. It's very, very very enlightening. Um kind of a nice segue from that, because you, you touched on a couple of things hey, that we lead in. can I
1: interrupt you? Of course. We talked we talked before we uh, got on air about if um you know, some of the podcasters that I don't like are the ones that just say, yeah, that's good. That's good. And they just move on to the next one and never, never press back on something. (laughs) They think everything that every guest ever says is great. So I do want to encourage you if there's anything that you disagree with that I ever say, like, that's, that's much more interesting to me. Like if you, if you do agree, great. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I'd need to think more about that. Um, But if you, if you don't or this follow up, yeah, just push me, man. Let's, uh, I, uh, you know, you're a super smart guy. I really appreciate how your brain works. I've appreciated conversations we've had in the past. So if there's some things that you want to push back on, I'd, I'd appreciate that.
0: No, don't worry. I'll, uh, I'll push back if I, if uh, if something does, does, uh, does trigger me. But no, no, on that, I, to be honest, more so. what You've touched on so far, particularly with that efficient, uh, effective, and efficient concept, is just more so clarifying it in my own mind. Like I don't, I haven't meditated on that enough to be in a position to sort of counter that with any sort of um disagreement on it yet it was just more so to make sure my understanding of of where you're coming at on that was sort of clear in my mind and even at that i still need to think about that a bit more because there's if you were to say to me effective and efficient effective to me is just like the outcome of a result whereas efficient is the energy that the cost of doing business essentially you know it's what actually comes into my mind was a an example of fergus Connolly. he was actually talking about um he was actually talking about, I don't know if the rugby player example he gave, but he basically he was saying that you could get like I'll just use the example of two place kickers in rugby. Is like you could get one guy or two guys and they're both kicking the ball over the bar, but one guy is like barely getting over the bar, like they're just scraping over the bar. Well the other guy is like and, and they're like and they're like they're barely getting over the bar, and they're like like they're not like straight between the posts, basically. They're just like, but they're still they're still three points, you know what I mean? Whereas the other guy, right, he's kicking them way up over the bar and they're straight through the goalposts, and they've got loads of distance on them, but it's still three points. So from an effective standpoint, they're equal, but their efficiency was completely different and the quality was yeah. completely different so from a quantitative standpoint they both got the same tangible result that you can measure the effectiveness of it they both scored three points but if you looked at the quality and the efficiency of the kick in motion and how well the ball traveled over the bar well one guy is clearly better than the other so fergus's point in that was like because his whole thing was like don't just judge quantity obviously judge the quality of an effort as well like and he was like if that came, you know, if, if that kick now was ten yards back, now you're going to start seeing discrepancies, and who would be able to kick that ball over? It. And it just whenever I think of effective versus efficient, effective was like the end result, whereas efficiency was like what was the quality, like what was the, the quality of the process that led to the outcome? That's kind of how I thought in my mind. Like so, when I heard you th- speak about that with sprinters, that's what I thought too. Was like because I remember there a while ago on Instagram you had put up a video of a, and it was funny. I knew I knew you were kind of where you were going with the video. You put up that that video of that what uh the the male sprinter and you were like what's wrong with this sprint and everyone's like oh it's this and it's this and you're like okay but here's his time <laughs> and it was just like so is there something wrong with this you know it's just the same with both like people are like oh sure look at both and he's like he's got scoliosis and all this is like yeah but as you as you've alluded to, humans are biological organisms and they're adaptive and it's like that was his adaptation that he probably needed to be able to 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 run that. That was his efficiency for his effectiveness, almost, you know. And it's, it's kind of this like people are like, oh, this is wrong, that's wrong. So, yeah, but like from an effective standpoint, he's still like running unbelievably fast. It's like, oh, is it the most efficient thing ever? Well, it probably is, given his constraints that he's presenting with. So that's kind of where I, I was thinking of that, and I just wanted you to kind of elucidate more on that concept.
1: Yeah, it's it's you know you you can think about examples in every sport around that, right? So you think about you know, longer distance runners, Um, Paula Radcliffe would be a great example. She's the second fastest marathoner in history. And does, does she look, you know, does she look efficient? Most people would say, nah, that doesn't look efficient. Her head's bobbing all over the place. She's doing some funky things with her, with her elbows. And it's just, that's not efficient. Well, it is, it is the most efficient strategy for her to run. It may not be the most effective, but is it is by definition the most efficient. That is her path of least resistance. If you had her move in a quote unquote more effective way that aligned with a more effective model, guess what would happen? She'd be significantly slower because the economy is way lower. The efficiency is way lower. The cost of doing business is way higher. Jim Furyk is the great example in golf, right? He's super funky backswing all over the shop. But at impact, that shape is an incredible shape. That shape is amazing. But how he gets there, does it look efficient? No, it doesn't. But it is. It's 100% efficient. So we're using generally efficient often in the wrong way. What we really are are speaking to there is the effectiveness. Now, does that mean that we see Paula Ratcliffe moving in a less... Probably what we would consider not the most effective strategy or using not the most effective strategy or with Jim Furyk or whoever you, or, you know, Usain Bolt, you choose your athlete and your task or your your um, your event or your sport, whatever. Does that mean that we don't go in there and try to improve the effectiveness of it? No, I think we do. Now, I think we have to be really, really careful how we do that. So if we've got, you know, a 15 or a 16 or a 17 year old who's really fluid, really efficient, you know, they're just their their patterns, their coordination patterns are great, but they're they're creating some really poor shapes that we feel with our experience and with whatever metrics that we use and measurements that we use to define this, whether we're we're you know objectively, subjectively, quantitative, qualitative, qualitative whatever that it will potentially, you know, this la- lack of effective movement potentially negatively affect their performance and or health, That we've got to try to encourage them to move in a more effective way. And we nudge them towards more effective strategies. We don't change them. This is their most efficient way. And this is where people get, get it wrong, right? They are moving to their most efficient strategy at that time. And if we change the model, change the way they move, we are negatively affecting efficiency and therefore we're negatively affected performance. We have to nudge them in what we feel is a more effective way. And then we build a timeline around that in which we're really patient with how quickly or how, uh, how slowly we would um, predict a more effective model to come online. And I think that's where a lot of us really uh, this this just looks funky. We got to change that. Boom. We go in there and we've got a negative performance um, or a negative health. Because remember, it's it's we're moving in a way that's most efficient. We're adapted to those most efficient ways. And if we're moving in a less efficient way, then now we're we're um we're putting loads on tissue, we're putting loads on the system that the system is not really prepared for. We're going to be as I said, not only negative, negatively affecting their performance, but also at that point, negatively affecting their health. So it's, if you've got a, you know, a Paula Ratcliffe who's been running this way for 20 years, guess what? You're not really changing that. You may still work towards just nudging into a slightly more effective way. Can we make these small little nudges? Yeah, maybe. Got to be really careful with it. But if we've got a 14 year old, we got to okay, ask the questions So well, why, why are we moving in this, what we feel is a less effective way and then put in strategies in place to maybe, you know, encourage a more effective way as we go through uh, the developmental process.
0: How do we make that distinction though, between bandwidth and and an aberrant movement? Like how do we decide, right, that does need intervention. And and then that doesn't like, is there a, a, a heuristic or a, a guiding rule of thumb that you use as a coach or that you've developed over the years for your coach and I, where like you can look at someone now and say, like, we need to make it, we, we need to make an intervention there, whereas we don't here, if that makes sense. Like, so basically, what, what is bandwidth versus what is actually an issue with a with movement?
1: I think the basic heuristic there is the longer that an athlete has been moving a certain way, the more careful we have to be in trying to um, affect it so if an athlete's been moving a certain way if an if athlete is 30 years old and this is their movement strategy we have to be really really careful if an athlete is 15 year old 15 years old and there's all sorts of plasticity in their strategies and there's massive amounts of variability in it because there will be right outcome variability when you're less elite is significantly higher than outcome variability when you are elite. The bandwidth is much tighter when you're elite than it is when you're much younger. So when you are much younger, then that's, there's opportunities there for us to try to encourage athletes to move in a more effective way. We still have to be careful with, you know, uh, moving them uh, in, in a, in a, what we feel is a more appropriate direction because we first have to ask, why are they moving this way? Right. It's so that's, you know, the, the process of, of any sort of, manipulation of the quality of movement is better is first is understanding what we see is a problem to begin with right so that's that's the question and kind of kind of what you're asking so if you've got a 30 year old elite sprinter truly elite world-class elite sprinter who has 25 degrees of asymmetry right to left on you pick your metric let's say external rotation Let's say there's there's 25% more external rotation at the right hip than there is on the left hip, yet the athlete is healthy and is performing well and is 30 years old. You're probably not going to do a lot. That's that they've been moving this way for a long, long time. If the athlete is 15 years old, and it's just, and it's you know the same athlete just rewind 15 years, still pretty elite, you know, still one of the best 15 year olds at that task, but there's 25% asymmetry then you probably want to take this time to try, okay, what can we do here to reduce this amount of asymmetry? So our first question there is asking whether this is a problem to begin with. For the 30-year-old, it's probably not a problem because they've probably been moving this way for a long, long time. It's now a part of the way in which they move. If there's a functional adaptation there, all of the tissues, all of the joints, the entire system has responded to how this uh, athlete goes around, goes about moving in this way, where 15-year-old much more plasticity, I said much more variability is an opportunity there to try to create a more effective pattern. Uh, so we would go in there then at that point, and then it's then it's a matter of okay, uh, categorizing the problem appropriately. Is this a problem of technique or is it a problem of structure or mechanics? You know, it's like is it a, what the way in which I, you know, somewhat incorrectly say is it a mechanical problem or a technical problem mechanical problem being one that the the athlete isn't technically uh in control of uh so it's 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 a it's an action capability issue they either don't have the you know the force producing ability they don't have the mobility they don't have the flexibility they don't have whatever it is that we are asking them to do that's a mechanical problem and a technical problem is a problem in which they have the action c- capability so they have the force producing ability they have the mobility of the joint they have the range of motion whatever it is they can move in a certain way and they're just not Right. So it's, it's, it's really important that we categorize that problem appropriately so we can put the right strategy in place. So we put a technical strategy in for a mechanical problem, then we're just making the problem worse and vice versa. That answer your question.
0: It does. I have a follow up to that. What if the 30 year old is constantly getting injured though? Yeah. Well,
1: that's, 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 that, that was my, you know, that's what I said. If the 30 year old is, is healthy and performing really well, and is elite, then it's it's not a problem. Now, if the 30 year old is injured all the time, but is elite when they're not injured, then it's yeah, that's a problem, right? Because so that's okay. Now, what is the genesis of this problem? And then we try to put strategies into place. Now for the 30 year old, we have to be way more patient with how we nudge them towards a more what we feel is a more effective strategy than we do with the 15 year old, because they're 30. And they've got this history of moving this way and this adaptation that's based upon this history that's now you know their system is set up in a way that the path of least resistance is this you know so we've got to be very very patient in that in that respect but yes that's uh, the answer to your question is if 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 it is affecting their either their health and or their performance negatively then our job is then to go in and try to put in, put strategies in place to try to get them moving in a way in which you know, we can um, better uh, or look, look to have a better mover, a higher quality movement, i.e. Uh, better health, better performance.
0: I completely disagree. I think you're full of bullshit. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> I'm just making sure I get that in now just to appease you, Stu. um I'd love to just get into your program now because... I, I actually didn't say this to you before, but I actually um, changed my program subsequently off a bit of your influence with those potentiation days, because I know we had a conversation about that and, and I'm fairly sure you have definitely spoke about it at ACA, the AC ACPs, but I don't know if you actually spoke about it on any of the um, podcasts you've been on, but this concept of, you know, like, you know, the kind of high low model, if you like, and, but Monday was a high day. And then, you know, Tuesday might be low and Wednesday might be high, whatever. And then, you were kind of saying well, what I kind of noticed was that at least to come back on Monday and they'd be a bit like, Bleh. and you're like, Monday was kind of shitty. So I was like, why don't we do a potentiation day on Monday? And like, I noticed the same thing with my guys too. And I started changing around. So I just shifted everything a day later, basically. So instead of like Tuesday was basically like the day we did our tempos actually. And I switched Monday around. So I just switched Monday and Tuesday and then continued the rest of the week on. So that to me made a lot of sense and um I actually remember from my master's course when I presented a case study and that was my microcycle setup that that was one of they were like why did you put a low day first and then I was like well you know potentiation and they're like oh very interesting and I was like yes very interesting <laughs> but uh I just credit, uh, did you credit yeah, me for it? I did no I did I said yeah, I okay. said it I did actually no I did I did I'm not just saying that now but uh you just where are you currently at with your with your programming and if you want to just maybe talk about your microcycle and I don't know, since, since 2017, since I was last at Altus and and around you and senior coach and senior program, have you made any changes or has there been much changes to your, to your idea of programming on, on whatever the micro, even to the macro, just your programming in general?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, there's always small changes, um, small tweaks, but the major methodology philosophy behind all that stuff kind of remains the same. Um. Yeah, so Monday is is what we call a P and P day, potentiation preparation. So it's not just potentiation, but we're preparing the system, the body, the whatever for what's to come, both on kind of a micro basis, like what's going on, on Tuesday, but also for the remainder of the week. So we talk about sort of bigger picture things. Um, you know, what's the what's the goal of the week, and what are we preparing for? throughout the week and so on and so forth so we implement a few different things on that monday but monday as you said it's it's kind of a low day if you look at the low high we write the entirety of the week around two sessions tuesdays and saturdays tuesdays and saturdays are our big days and everything else is about either preparing for or recovering from those two days and the other kind of day which we can get some high quality work in is a thursday but we can't get anywhere near as high a quality work on the thursday as we do on this on the tuesday and saturday for example if we've moved really fast on a tuesday um and mo- real and we are moving really fast on a saturday if we're moving fast on a on a thursday then it's going to be uh hindering both the recovery from the tuesday as well as as the uh, preparation to the saturday so we have to be re- really careful with what we do on that thursday whereas earlier in the season for example tuesdays and saturdays are still our big days but we're not moving as fast right because it's a little bit earlier so we may be at 80 or 85% of our what would be determined as our maximum sprint speed, so we can do the same on Thursday, you can hit 80 to 85% three days a week, no problem, you can maybe even hit 90% three days a week, but if you're going up to 98% on a Tuesday and 98% on a, on a Saturday, then you can't do much higher than sort of 80 or 85% on a Thursday so that that in and of itself just that as a governing heuristic kind of tells us what we can and cannot do. So that you know so thursdays can be like a technical day or they can be an acceleration day or maybe an elastic strength day and so on and so forth so we set it up where tuesday is high quality saturday's high quality uh monday is pnp potentiation preparation uh, wednesday is um, either passive or active recovery depending on the athlete thursday is we kind of dial in depending upon where we are in the season. Friday, again, uh, active or passive recovery uh, based on, on the athlete. And then uh, Sunday is just a, a total day off. So that's the setup of the week. It's always kind of been the same. Earlier in the season, uh, we're going to separate component, separate component parts. So we'll do a day where it's just acceleration. We'll do a day where it's just speed. We'll do a, a day where it's just special endurance. We'll do a day where it's just endurance or tempo. We'll do a day where it's just regeneration and recovery. And then as the closer we get to the competitive season, the more uh, those things overlap. So now a typical Tuesday will be acceleration plus speed work. And a typical Saturday will be acceleration plus some sort of uh, special or speed endurance work, for example. And then Thursday will be, as I said, either some more acceleration or some elastic strength, so on and so forth. Now, more from a macro perspective, um, you know, this, this is, this is something that I continue to think a lot about, right? There's two basic ways that we, have we can look at this we can write in a priori um, regenerative periods or deload weeks and i think most people do that right they'll they'll uh, write a program where there's two weeks loading one week unloading two weeks loading one week unloading or three and one or whatever that is but it's most people would do that most people in track and field do that and i think most you know or a, a lot of people do that sort of in team sport as well in the off season um, that's one way to do it where we kind of we write our program around a prediction of when the adaptation um potential is sort of maximized and then we back off and allow for this quote-unquote super compensation and then we start the process again that's one way another way is we just force the adaptation <laughs> you just keep working and you force the system to adapt um and and and, and it, it, I guess the third way to do it is, is where, where you just sort of, um, you know, oscillating between primary components, which I do do with, with a few athletes, actually with my, with my quarter milers will oscillate between periods of extensification where we're loading by, um, uh, volume and periods of intensification where we're loading by intensity. So we're never, it's a 400, you gotta be really fast, but you also need to have you know, really good enduring abilities. So I never want to be too far away from the, the, you know, maximizing both of those ends of the continuum. So I'll do two weeks where we go, we, we're focusing on speed. And the next two weeks, we're we're focusing more on volume and so on and so forth. And it's in, where I am with the first two, whether we just force the adaptation just by, all right, you just work and you, your body's got to figure out a way to get get through and actually adapt. And then we we'll might make some micro adjustments um, as we go, make sure that we're not overtraining or overreaching excessively, um, and comparing that one to the, you know, where we organize or periodize the periods of of downloading. That's something I still think is really an interesting conversation. It's very contextual. Obviously, it's going to be very different for each individual and for each athlete, and for even even for each um, sport. But it's something that I I think it's it's um, it's interesting for me from a philosophical standpoint. But it's also interesting from a, um, a training perspective, you know, it's forcing the adaptation just by working is potentially a little bit less robust. Um, it's, uh, it probably will be leading to more injuries, but for the athletes that don't get injured, they're probably doing better. The other way is it's probably more robust, but it may not necessarily be, 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 uh, leading to a super elite performance
0: yeah I guess that kind of goes back to knowing the athletes too because I remember a conversation I had with you and Kev while I was interning and Kev Tyler obviously he was very well endowed in Charlie's system and at the time like my only real knowledge of track and field was Charlie Francis I think a lot of S&C coaches who don't come from a track and field background like Charlie Francis kind of like their first sort of introduction to track and field and mainly because a lot of Charlie's work is based on like the the physiological adaptations more so than like really getting into like the technical aspects of you know acceleration versus top you know it's not so much the biomechanics it's more about like the physical development of qualities which SNC coaches can kind of understand because that's their world like oh buyer motor abilities yeah that's what we love but it's like oh don't show us mechanics but I remember what Kev said was that like for that model to be successive you need good therapy to go alongside it so that the athlete doesn't break down and then you know you were like that's why a lot of people don't succeed in models like that so like coach heart's model too with um Clyde heart's model too with michael johnson like that blew up most athletes because you know and then you get that one freak that just that's where they thrive in so i i, I get what you're saying what you're saying if you were to go that more sort of force the adaptation the kind of like strongest shall survive almost is like the ones that benefits will probably be monsters, but you're going to leave a trail of destruction for most other athletes who would have tried in a, in a far more sort of cerebral, um, training program.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the point, right. And that that is the most important thing that comes out of that is most people who reach the top of their sport, regardless of the sport, that's what they've done. They're the one that's been able to make it through, you know, whether it be a weightlifting or powerlifting or sprinting you know they just work super hard and they're forced to adapt to this work and they're the, and they're the ones that make it through that are the ones that we see on the, on the on the podiums almost ex, not almost exclusively but a lot of the time right like they, even even now like the people that we see on the top of sprint podiums they're just just working super hard and they've got some you know just incredible capacity for work and to adapt to that work where others in that same group doing the same program won't have, you know, there's, there's many of the top sprint programs in the world have, have less than the 50% success rate, you know, 50% of the athletes will be hurt at any, any one moment in time, but the 50% that are not hurt are running really fast. And the 5% on top of that 50%, those are the people on on the podiums. And, you know, again, look at across, across all your sports, it's the same thing with, with, uh, with weightlifting, you know, it's the ones that can do the more work. You know, it's when it comes down to it, and that you know, I I, uh, I tweeted this uh, earlier yesterday or the day before. It's just, you know, at a certain level, it's just about the people that can do more work. You know, Big it's time. the Bo- bondage thing was the compression of specific abilities. How can we compress more specific work in finite periods of time? And the people that can do more of that are the people that will will adapt faster, quicker, become faster, stronger, bigger, whatever it is. And those are the ones that you know. Ultimately, are the ones, as I said, uh, if if they if they remain healthy, are the ones that are st- standing on the podium at Worlds and Olympic Games.
0: Did you ever get tempted to play around with that again? Remember Bondarchuk and your experiment with that with a sprinter.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm always tempted, and um, yeah, I, I think there's 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 always there's lessons in that. There's things that I do every day that I feel like are really important. But the compression of specific abilities, I feel is is challenging and difficult in the sprint population just because of the, the amount of stress that it puts on tissue and the ability to be able to come back from it. Um, but yeah, if if I was in a less... Uh, um, you know, maybe if I, if I was coaching high school or a club at a fairly low level, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd still really like to... Push the boundaries of that a little bit and see what can be done in Bonincheck model. But I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of pro groups that kind of are doing that. You know they they train four days a week, and those four days are very very similar. They are all work at about eighty five to ninety percent of their max sprint, sprint speed. They're all very similar. You know they're all eight hundred to twelve hundred meters of of work at that threshold, and the people that can make it through, run really fast, and then people don't don't. And if uh, you know, if you time it right, where you're, you know, you're running fast at the right time, you can do really, really well. But that's kind of the same, right? That's compression-specific abilities. That's Bondachuk stuff. I tend to be a little bit safer than that. I tend to, okay, we got to make sure first and foremost that the athletes are actually healthy enough to be able to be able to run fast. But I understand that this there's, there's another way of doing things for sure. And sometimes I'm probably a little bit uber safe and i'm not pushing the envelope as quite as much as what i uh could and should be
0: a question i definitely wanted to ask you and this may potentially now uh, make you happy because there could be a bit of pushback here on this from myself (laughs) but one thing i was kind of not that i was shocked by it but i think this is why i really like les bellman and it's a question I want to put to you. The reason I really like Les is that he measured so much. Like, he's always measuring. And, like, he, you know, he's con- constantly getting back data, which, just to me, I like. And when I was at Altus, I was surprised at how little you guys measured. Now, obviously, there's budgetary constraints with the technology you can you can get in, but I was kind of surprised with, like... Uh, maybe you can give me the reason to this but why don't why didn't you time and maybe it's different now, but why don't you time your sprinters at every session or more is it is it you know is there is it a psychological thing too that you don't want sprinters constantly you know Whoa, what was my time and like i suppose that could come down to like education like it's not about pr and it's about being in that like because you, you i know, earlier on you said oh well if you're going 98 percent on tuesday and saturday i'm like but how do you know it's 98 if you're not measuring
1: yeah i don't know where you were man but i i time everything like I, I don't, I don't time thirty meters and down, but I time everything that's above that. So it's, uh, I, I measure every single run that we do, that's you know in spikes, that's uh, further than actually further than forty meters.
0: Not with gates though, when I was there, no timing gates. No, no, it was stopwatch. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which is it? Yeah, don't roll your eyes at me. So in, in many times the stopwatch is is more accurate than the timing gates that are out there. Trust me, there's some some timing gates that give give you a lot of funky, funky things.
0: Yeah, um, now 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 the disagreement's coming.
1: No, no, no. We know, but we know that. Um, you know, you, if you if you compare sort of 1080 with free lap, with uh GPS units, with you know, they're all over the place, man. And and then your your typical free lap will give you a fly 30. That's probably pretty accurate. But the fly tens within that fly 30 are all over the shop. So it's, it, it, I, it, I went away from, from using much of that. But also, you know, we've, we've used stat sports for the last three years. And prior to that, we used Catapult. And then we, when they had the 1080, we look at all the data from the 1080. When we have, um, you know, we had the living lab at Altus for, for three years, and we had two sports scientists working full-time for us. So then you can do it, right? It's not necessarily budgetary constraints, but it's constraints on time and energy. So it's it's you know, you've got to be you've got to be have the time to do it. So we when you've got a group of 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 athletes doing a task or doing multiple tasks, that is a very different thing than having a much smaller group that have a task of a 40 yards. That's really easy. And you know, no, no disrespect to Les, that's a friend. I like Les. I, I mean, Les is doing a great job, but that's I. Les is doing it perfectly. You can you can time everything that those guys do, and there's a very strong correlation between that time and their 40 yard time. So yeah, that's meaning that's meaningful. These are these are part of your KPIs. That isn't necessarily the same on everything that you do for training somebody for 100 or 200. When you're working at all sorts of different points on the velocity. Uh, uh, curve as well, right? You, you're working at seventy percent, eighty percent, ninety percent. How do you quantify some of these things? It's impossible. We don't know yet. We don't have the answers to be able to properly quantify a run at eighty-five percent or ninety percent. We don't. We can't even quantify anything at ninety-five percent, ninety-eight percent, or hundred percent in sprinting. You can't. We don't have the ability to do that yet. So it's um what we tend to rely more on. Again, and this is go back. kind of goes full circle here to what we started started out talking about. Is it's Is is understanding the relationship between load and adaptation is not reliant upon technology, but reliant upon everything in the system. The conversations you have with the athletes, how the athlete shows up, what they look like when they're warming up, how they go through their warm up strides, the time that they run in the stopwatch, the time that they run in the stat sports GPS unit, the time that they run on the 1080, how they recover how they're feeling later, how they looked in the weight room. All of this stuff is a big part of this complex stew. And we use this with our experiences, coaches who have been doing this for 20, 25, 30, 35 years, whatever, to make a determination on that relationship between load and adaptation, rather than only looking at this, this one metric that's being spit out by the 1080. That's not it. That isn't it. Now that's in a simple system where we're training people just to run a 40 yards, that's a much greater part of that system. And we can be a lot more reliant upon that single metric, but that's not sport. Sport isn't single metrics. Sport is multiple metrics interacting in all sorts of complex ways that we don't understand.
0: Where are you with Bosch and his stuff?
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not at the date. I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, I've talked about Bosch a lot. It's it's I felt like his I didn't like his running book, you know, the, the Bosch and Klump book. I thought that was eh, it's okay. I don't I don't think there's anything in there that was really in, informed what I did in any any real way. Um, but I think his his next book, uh Coordination of Strength Training or whatever it's called, um, was excellent, like really, really good. And I think he was the first person who was actively and openly talking about the use of of some of you know the the dynamical systems approaches in what we did as coaches and i think you know he's changed the entire field for the better because of that like he wasn't wasn't the first but he was the first who was actively and openly and traveling the world talking about these things right um which i thought was really important and i think the book is really good and i've read the book you know four or five times at this point i think it's i think for the most part it's 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 excellent um you know, and I think that should be the focus. Not on the practical application, which is where everybody goes with it. And they look at, okay, well, Bosch has these ways of of applying these principles, these methods of applying these principles. So we get, as a community, as an industry, we focus on the method, not the principle. We're backwards, man. The principle is great. Focus on that and go big picture and understand what comes behind some of these, the way in which Bosch specifically Based on his experiences with his athletes, in his history, with the sport that he's worked on, how he's applied these principles, that may not be relevant to you. And that's okay. (laughs) You know, that's okay. But the principles are still sound. Base your methods, the way in which you apply these principles, based on your history, with the sports that you work with, with the athletes that you work with in those sports and what you're seeing and how you can organize it within your system, in your way. And we just get, as we often do, we focus on the end point and the Bosch exercises. And I, I do Bosch exercises. That's freaking stupid. Like, we're better than that, man. Let's think. Why are we doing it? What is the adaptation that we're trying to elicit by doing this task, this exercise? That's it. Okay. And then try to find other ways that can do it that are maybe more appropriate or, or, you know, more appropriate for the people that you're working with in your space and your time. That's, um, so generally it's you know I'm I'm all about Bosch I think he's done a great great job with that w- would I do it would I apply some of those principles in the way in which he's applied it no but that's okay like it's we're all different we are all have different uh, histories and different experiences with different athletes in different contexts that's not that's not not in that's not interesting to me what's interesting to me is the principles behind it that's great I said as, as I said he's one of the first to actually bring some of those um uh, really important principles to sport where it was it's you know as I said there was a lot of people thinking this way at the same at, at, at that time but he was the first one to actually go wide with it and got a lot of publicity from it where our work in the weight room isn't only about getting bigger for bigger faster and stronger there's so many other things that we can do in the weight room and that's in in the elite ends bigger faster and stronger are probably the least important pieces of the puzzle so it's uh yeah that's that's where I currently sit it's where I've sat with Bosch probably for the last decade now since I since about the time that I that I read his book
0: it's funny too because like a a lot of coaches I knew who were like giving him a lot of shit and like a lot of pushback were the same coaches then that would be quoting Bondarchuk and Verkashansky and it's like you you do realize these are the boys who talked about dynamic correspondence and transfer to sport and that's essentially what Franz is saying Yeah. yeah So it was kind of funny. I remember the question I was going to ask you, because you ever only have a question and you go blank, and you're like, "Oh, I had a really good question, and it's gone." And I'm stalling to see if it will come back. This one now, <laughs> I want to ask you this because sometimes uh, I uh, I um remember there's the Charlie Francis forms, and I go in there now and again, and oh, my God, those people really don't like you. Do they not? Oh, they had this thing against Altus and Steve McMillan. I don't know what it is. Now they're all they're they're posts from years ago when you used to train when you used to train um. Andre, and uh, they were just to be all like, "Oh, like, look at what my Millen's doing," and like I just be laughing at myself because I'd be thinking like, if Stu was reading this, he'd be he'd be breaking his bollocks laughing at this as well. It's hilarious. But we we've had many a chuckle around, you know, some of the concepts around Charlie's model, and and listen, no, I know you. I'll let you speak for yourself, but listen, um, there's amazing things to be learned from from Charlie's model. But I can remember the day at my first ACP and. I was like, what's your uh, take on that? You have to be over 95% to get fast. And like, basically like every one of the Alta staff just like remained quiet and just all looked at you and were like, okay, Stu, let Robbie have it. And I was like, like a little puppy in the corner. like, (laughs) And you just went off in this amazing. Now it wasn't a rant, but it was an amazing answer. But basically I'm going to ask you like, Stu, you can't get fast doing submaximal sprinting. Like, this is ridiculous. So just have a rant on that if you want.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's for some people, some of the time, running only maximally is the most appropriate way for them to get faster. That, you know, that, that that's not controversial. For some people, some of the time, it's not appropriate because we are all different. We're all individual, complex, adaptive human beings that all adapt to load and respond to load in individual ways. So you've got to be careful with your governing heuristics. So you can use as a governing heuristic that intensity is really important to driving the adaptive process when it comes to getting fast. Yep, good. I can get on board with that. You can't use the only way to get fast is by running 100%. You can't use that because that's not accurate across the board. It's accurate for some people some of the time and some some points of the development. But if we actually break down what faster is, like what do we mean by velocity? Well, there's many ways to, to look at it, but let's just look at, at um, step length and step frequency. So what we're trying to do is either or both increase our step length, and or increase our step frequency. So how can we do that? Well, there's multiple ways we can do that, clearly, right? It's not the only method to do that isn't just to go out and run as fast as you can. You can get stronger. And if you're 14 years old and you get stronger, your step length will increase. That's guaranteed. If you get taller from 14 to 15, your step length will increase, regardless of how much fast work you've done. So it's just, that's, my problem is not in that heuristic as a specific heuristic. It's in any heuristic that is, that is used as an absolute. You can't use it. You just, there's no absolutes in this. There really and truly isn't. So you've got to build your heuristics or your governing heuristics around things that, are, that allow for the complexity of the system and the individuality of the athletes that, that exist within it. So that was, I've probably, since that time, Robbie, and you know, I was very, at at the time, like it, it was, like all you'd hear, like now it's different. Like we're however many years past that now, and there's a much greater appreciation for speed in sport. But seven, 10 years ago, it was just Charlie Francis. And every SNC coach is just Charlie Francis this, Charlie Francis that. I said, Come on, man. Like, it's, There's a lot of really, really successful sprint coaches in the world, more successful than Charlie Francis that have a lot more to offer in this space. You know, And, and I'm not saying that Charlie Francis is, is wrong. Like, yeah, it's great. He's He was ahead of his time in so many different ways. For sure he was. Um, now I've got some biases against some of the other things that he did and the way that he did it, obviously. As a as a young sprint coach that was coming up in Canada at the time, I felt like what he did and how he did it was was uh, um, just say, let's just say really really bad, <laughs> and really bad for a lot of people for a long time. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should that we should throw the baby out of the bathwater there and not learn from some of his methodology and some of the ways that he did things. Um, you know, I didn't know Charlie, but I, I know obviously Kevin really well, Kevin trained with Charlie. I know Derek really well. Derek was with Charlie. Uh, so I, I've coached athletes that were also coached by Charlie. So I know the system well, and I know kind of the things that he did, did well. And I know there's a lot of complexity to that too, right? It wasn't just, yeah you know, you're running hundred, hundred percent. And if you can't run hundred percent, you're going home. It wasn't that either. It was, there was, there was, there were definitely a lot of times where he was running in that, you know, quote unquote middle zone. Right. So that became You know, years ago, when everyone was just talking about that, that was kind of what I was fighting against Just Come on, man, let's just be a little bit better thinkers here. Let's just do a better job of critically thinking about what it is that we're doing. And it wasn't at the time. And it's it's hard to remember this now, right? But um, speed and team sport was just that, like, it's become now like it's, everyone's understanding the complexity around that a lot more because there's so many people talking about it. But seven, 10 years ago, there wasn't, it was just just run 30s really fast and do tempo. <laughs> you know, and that was it. And then there's some ma- some magical things going to happen that's going to make you a faster player. But it's, um, and that was kind of the argument that I had. And that was where you probably got me in a point where, man, I'm just tired of people, of this w- one dogmatic view of how to get fast. There's much more to it than this. Every sprint coach on the planet knows this, but all these SNC coaches are just following this one guy because he's got this, this myth around him and this forum that's based around this myth and so on and so forth. And it was just annoying. So that's, that's kind of, kind of where it was at the time. I'm a little bit older and wiser and more mature now. And I can see the, you know, even the complexities around that, but as an industry, I think we're, we have a much more nuanced view of what speed is in sport now, don't
0: we? You're also more beardy now. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I I think to the, you know, th- there was that, uh, I was going to say fallacy. It's not necessarily fallacy, but there is that bias in SNC that all team sports are just acceleration dominant, and you know, acceleration—the acceleration phase of sprinting—is so dependent on like underpinning physical qualities. Where like more upright maximal velocity, that's where you need to kind of know more about the coordinative abilities. Not saying that there is no coordinative abilities in acceleration. There is, but a lot of people. And then this is where you can feel free to obviously disagree and obviously give your thoughts because this is your wheelhouse. But uh, I know Tim Karen on, on Twitter, his feeling towards this was that like acceleration, he believes will get more change out of strength work, less on technical. And then he felt it was flip flop for velocity, max velocity. He felt max velocity got less obviously from strength work, but a lot more from actual technical focus. And he was like, I'm not saying acceleration doesn't have a technical focus on it. But he's like, if you're a strength coach, he's like, you'd probably get bigger bang from book increasing those underpinning physical qualities so that's probably why there is this bias from SNC coaches that Charlie Francis model again because it was so like bio motor driven and it didn't get into that like scary world for SNC coaches where they have to talk about mechanics where they feel very un- uncomfortable when it when you mention like kinematics and kinetics and they're like what the hell is that they're just like just power and cleans and this, squats
1: yeah but that's really important you know and, and that's that's yeah you're you're that brings up a really important piece. It, it is, the, the reality is that people get faster. Um, you know, The, the biggest, the, the, low, the most low hanging fruit of why a team sport player will get faster will be will have a physical genesis and not a technical genesis. 100%, 100%, not, that's not just upright. And I, I agree probably for the most part with that, that heuristic. It's mostly um, physical during acceleration and maybe mostly technical during uh, upright. But why, if there's been technical changes to how a player moves when they're upright, those have a physical genesis. It always comes down to what is the physical component here? What have we done? Can they, can they generate more forces? Have they generated those forces faster? And have they oriented those forces more appropriately, you know, in a more appropriate direction? It just comes down to those three things. And all of those things generally have, you know, a, a a physical genesis, even the orientation of, it. you know, it's just, you can orient your forces more appropriately if you have the rate of force development that allows you to do that better, right? So it's, it's, I feel like, you know, and, and yeah, I think it's great that that team sport is having um, a greater appreciation for sprint or for how people sprint. But for me, the um, the pendulum has swung way too far. It looks to me like most team sport S&C coaches now are looking to have a greater understanding of sprint biomechanics than almost every elite sprint coach on the planet does. It's really not that, that much of a KPI. Understand what is the low-hanging fruit. What are the basic things that you need to understand? Measure those. And then try to change those. So it com- comes back to, again, figure out what matters. And all these specific kinematic and kinetic parameters that a lot of people are, are, are building their programs around, they don't matter. What are the ones that matter? Bring, Give me two to three things, and that's it. In team sport, that's it, because there's all sorts of other things that matter in this complex system. In sprinting, it's different, right? How an athlete moves in sprinting is a big part of the timing that's going to happen at the end right it's, it's technique as i said before when you're talking about effective and efficient blah 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 that is the sport sprinting is the sport in sprinting it's not the sport in football and rugby and all these other other sports it's just a part of it so from that perspective you know, again like let's boil it down to understanding what actually matters so that what is the interaction impact with the ground what does that look like? What is the quality of the interaction and the impact? What does the foot and ankle do as it's interacting and impacting the ground? Really, really important. What's the attack angle? How are you attacking the ground? How do the thighs scissor in space and time? And what is the position of the pelvis? That's it. That's it. Is the pelvis in a good position? Does the thigh, Do the thighs scissor in space and time effectively and efficiently? Are you attacking the ground in the most appropriate direction based upon what you're trying to do for that task? And, and most importantly, what is the interaction impact with the foot, ankle, and the ground? That's that is so important. And we instead we go straight into being my, this you know the minutiae and myopic thinkers about all of this stuff. That come on, man! Like zoom out here. Like again, let's be a little bit better critical thinkers and try to understand what truly matters in sprinting. So it's either, it, one you know this is this I had this talk a lot with all of the professional teams that I that I. Um, that I that I um I go and consult with. Because a lot of them, you're right. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of um stressed out a little bit that they feel like they have to be sprint by a mechanism. No, you don't. You don't. You just got to understand what matters. You know, it's just like every other part of your of your program. You just what what is the things that matter? So it's the, the analogy I use is if you are a a boxer, or maybe not even a boxer, but you're just you and you're hitting a heavy bag as hard as you can, what do you do with your fist and your wrist? Well, you squeeze your wrists as hard as you can and you hold your, your, your uh, sorry, you squeeze your fists as hard as you can and you hold your wrists as rigidly as you can. Why is that? Because you're hitting the bag really, really hard. Well, how hard do you think you're going to hit the bag? Well, an elite boxer hits a bag with somewhere peak forces between four and five times their body weight. And it takes them about four to five thousandths of a second to reach a peak force on hitting a heavy bag. Well, guess what other task? It's just like that. In sprinting, the elite sprinters have peak forces of over five times their body weight, and they reach peak force in somewhere about four to five thousandths of a second. But we don't think about holding or the 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 uh, you know the, the 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 interaction and the impact of the foot ankle with the ground because we do it all the time. We walk and we jog and we run and we do all these things and we just sort of take it for granted. But we do when we're boxing. We do when we're hitting something or hitting somebody. We wouldn't ever think about hitting some, hitting a boxing uh, bag with a loose wrist and fist. It's the same thing with
0: sprinting.
1: So if, if if we just did that and just did a better job of understanding the foot, how that, how the foot inter- impacts and interacts with the ground, you've got eighty percent of it done. Because that's the biggest low-hanging fruit that I see in team sport is overplant flexion on contact and overplant flexion on, on uh, toe off. And we can do that by just better understanding what it is it's supposed to do and putting things in place to allow for a better execution. And that's it. That's number one. Can you do that? Okay. Yeah. I can, I can better understand that. Now, do you understand attack angle? Okay. We can do a better job of understanding attack angle, what that means. Do you understand the position of the pelvis? Okay. Cause you know, and Mendaguchi has done that great work. Now we're actually seeing, you know, we're, we're, the importance of that, not just from a performance perspective, but a health perspective, right? So we've fi- finally, for the first time, being able to make that causal link between the position of the pelvis and, and health and performance. And, you know, that that's it, really. I mean, for 99% of the people, 99% of the time, that's it. Now, if, you know, you want to go a little bit deeper and, you know, and, and look at, you know, different asymmetries and different things and look at motor preferences and so on and so forth. That's really interesting, too. And at the elite end, maybe that's something that we we dive into, but we've got to understand as we as circling back again to what we talked about at the start of how all of that fits in context with the rest of the system and how it fits into all the other stuff that we're doing that we know and that we that we're implementing in, in, in our, you know, the entirety of our program.
0: Yeah, it, it makes me think of that, um, you know, the concept of obviously eighty twenty, I and I can't remember specifically who said this, but they were they were trying to say that make sure like put all your energy into that 20% that gets you to 80%. So essentially what is the lowest hanging fruit and don't get that reversed. Like don't start spending 80% of energy to get like that last 20%, which really doesn't matter. And that's kind of nearly what you're seeing with some of the athletic development coaches in these pro sports. Like they're getting so myopic now down some of these areas. It's like you've gone too far down there at the sacrifice for other things that are going to have far greater transferability to the actual sport that you're working with here yeah it's um, the,
1: that's the Pareto the Pareto principle right so yeah, yeah yeah 100% like figure out what the 20% is you know and we, that's where we start and then you know if you get to a point where you can handle more complexity yeah, you go up to 25 and 30 and 35 and 40 but you don't start at 80.
0: Yeah yeah so uh with, with just what this this my final training question um but and uh, just before you are you are you okay for time you 10 more minutes or
1: yeah I got 10 or 15.
0: Yeah perfect just with regards then to, and I know you guys. I mean, the need for speed course is is phenomenal. Like you're, and and this is going to be pure. Like people, are like oh, he's purely sucking up here to do. Like, listen, the 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 education that is available from Altus at the at the price that those courses go for is scandalous. Like the when the foundations course came out, I was currently going through my masters, and I'm just like, I'm just spending ten grand on a masters, and Altus would literally put it out here for like a tenth of that price (laughs) you know what i mean it was like the the quality is phenomenal and you can call me fanboy here whatever. But it genuinely and listen i'm i don't suffer fools gladly if i really didn't think it was quality i I wouldn't have even brought this up but the the quality of that content in all your courses phenomenal but just on the need for speed course i know you guys do cover this but when we talk about pure track athletes you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you want them to prolong their acceleration for as long as possible. But would, am I right in thinking that that's the opposite you want though for a field-based Sally? You want them like to hit their actual, their, their velocity quicker. Like, do you want, you want them to get to their, you want them accelerating quicker, whereas obviously with sprinter, you'd like them to prolong that acceleration. And if that is the case, how essentially would you train those two contrasting sort of outcomes?
1: Yeah, we, you, 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 first you don't, um, We look for the underlying principles that, or the invariant rules is the way in which we communicate it in the course, right? What are the principles that underlie all of acceleration? What is acceleration? The acceleration is the ability to project your center mass into space fast. So we train ways in which we can project our center mass into space at varying rhythms and varying rises, so how do you do that? So you just learn, learn how to do that. You know, it's, it's, we, we talk about having to, you know, learn the rules before you break the rules. So you have to learn how to just do the basics. I mean, what are the rules? So the rules are projection, rhythm and rise. And then the, the technical rules are based around what we talked about before, the feet and ankle, the attack angle of the shin, the scissoring of the thighs, the position of the pelvis and the, and the uh, position of the torso relative to the center mass. Those are the five things that matter, right? You've got to be able to do all those things and be able to coordinate your, your limbs in space and time and in, in, in effective ways. To be able to um, do that in more complex environments, and in and and with uh, complex constraints and different things that come into the system, or different uh, different ways of uh, information or different uh, way, different pieces of information in the system, but you actually you have to have the physical ability to be able to do those things first and foremost. If you can't accelerate properly outside of the context of the game, you can't do it within the game just that's that's makes total sense right you can't do something in a more complex system that you can do in a less complex system so we talk about that first and foremost so what are those invariant rules that underpin all of the stuff that you are actually doing in the game so it's it's not that we're trying to find okay what are all of the ways in which you have to accelerate in rugby and then let's let's try to teach all of those things no what are the underpinning abilities that are required for you to be able to accelerate in all of these different varying ways, you know what's the so we need to make a stable skill or try to build a stable skill, as well as an adaptable skill, something that can be adapt to all these varying constraints and these varying uh, pieces of information that's in the system. So, you know, it's. Um, yeah, it, it, it for me it's. You know that's that's not a 10 minute conversation, by the way, but it, it the. Uh, it's it's a really interesting one, right? Because we do talk about transference uh, a lot, and whether the stuff that we're doing external, isolated, and decontextualized to the context of the game will transfer to the game, and it doesn't, right? We know that. It's it's. But I don't. I I feel sometimes that we kind of use the the wrong word in transfer. Um. I I prefer to use the word relatedness, and then we looking th- for things that relate to the game because the only way the only things that are actually going to transfer the game is the game. That's, that's it. And every, you know, every generation you come away from that is less and less quote unquote transference or less and less relatedness. So it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's for me, transfer is a still a word that we use a little bit loosely without really truly uh, defining well, you know, um, you know, and the, the typical uh, definition and I don't remember what it is, but it's a, the Australian researcher right from, was it early, early nineties? Um, and it was basically the performance of a, of a, of a, of a, um, a training task and how that affects the performance of a competition task. Right. I'm not, the words are a little bit off there, but it's, it's, that is such a, a such a loose definition, <laughs> you know, like I, I, for me, that's okay. So you're just going to do this training task and that's going to automatically affect the, 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 the the competition task? No, it's it's not. That doesn't. It's not how transfer works. There's a there's a level of relatedness here in which it can affect these underpinning abilities that you have. These action capabilities, these perception action capabilities, these things in your in your system in a positive way that may make you uh, able to play the game better. But there's it's really really difficult for us to draw a straight line from one to the other. So I, with the way in which I typically tend to talk about that is, is uh, generations of relatedness. Um, so yeah, to get back to your question, it's just that, you know, it's a, you, you have to under, understand and identify what those underpinning abilities are. What are those non-variant rules in whatever the task is? You know, it's uh, one way in which I do, I talk to a lot of coaches now is identify what are the most relevant shapes and patterns in the sport and find as many different ways as you possibly can to build a more stable an adaptable shape and pattern. So what are the shapes and patterns that are relevant to sprinting? And we talked about them, right? The uh, the impact and the interaction with the foot. What's the shape of the foot at contact and toe off? What is the attack angle of the, of the shin? The scissoring of the thighs, so the coordination of that, that's the, that's the most relevant pattern in sprinting. The position of the pelvis and the position of, this, of the torso relative to the center mass. And then build everything that you do, everything that you do. Take a pluralistic approach to this, where you're trying to make this, this pattern and this shape more stable and more adaptable. Everything you do in the warm-up, everything you do in your drills, everything you do in the weight room, everything that you ask the athletes to do in, in, at their homework, whatever you do in sports medicine, what uh, you know what kind of stretches are you doing, what kind of therapy are you doing, so on and so forth. Everything is about trying to build a more higher quality uh, shape and pattern that is the most relevant for the for the sport that you're working towards or working working to improve.
0: Yeah, your your concept there of of um of transfer and relatedness it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with um I was going to say well he he's he's a good friend of both of us but you know him way, way longer and way better than me but Derek Evely I I've well I've had the pleasure of meeting Derek when I was at Altus and when you meet Derek you never forget it. Def, de- definitely my my type of person but uh derek i remember he said it's similar along what you just touched on there he he said there's he sees it in his mind as there's specificity as in you know the said principle but then he's like then there's transfer and he believes that people get those mixed up he's like obviously specific adaptation postman's like that's purely like, specificity it, it almost is the task if not identical to the task and then he's like transfer can be very different and he was saying like transfer needs a lot of context because he's like what transfers for one athlete will be different from another because depending on where they are on their the, their development he's like the example you could use is like a young athlete if they do something that's that has you know that doesn't from the outside have a lot of immediate specificity to their sport but it can still have a lot of transfer because they have a low training age so like obviously if you get a young athlete stronger they start accelerating and changing direction better in their sport. So he's like, that actually had a large transfer to their sport. So now they're, they're they've gotten better at a sport specific task doing something that wasn't actually specific like their sport, but it transferred because of their low training age, where you do that with a more elite athlete, least, like now it's not transferring anymore. Now it's now, it's, now it's that sixth or seventh generation that you and Dan will talk about.
1: Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, no one better to talk about those concepts than Derek.
0: Uh, just wrapping up. And when, when your time goes, you just call it. So, um, few things are just these these are just like little people also oh, at the end the, the buzz round but whatever uh your love for music where, where did that come from because i know we both love music but i know that i'm really getting into the blues ever since i met you i got more into the blues and listened to robert johnson and all that and but i know that you've an eclectic background and you've got thousands of records but where did that love for music come from
1: yeah it, it mostly came from when i moved to canada so i i moved um as i said i had no friends i moved a little bit later into the semester. And uh, I moved on into this new class where I knew nobody. But on the same day, uh, another kid, another young twelve-year-old, uh, moved there as well on the same day and started on the same day as I did. And he was a Jamaican kid, and uh, his his father owned a sound system, um, so he, he was a reggae DJ, owned a sound system. So I used to spend a lot of time with this Jamaican kid and got into the culture, you know, the reggae, the sort of the Jamaican culture around food and, and music and and uh, dancehall and all that so that's that's I became uh you know five years later I started DJing right I became a a reggae DJ in 1987 and and uh did that until I left Canada in in 2010 so it's uh it's it's you know we're so much we're shaped by you know our our formative years right so from when I was 12 to 17 or so I was just spending so much time with this kid and listening to this music and gaining an appreciation for this music and really and not not just that but also an appreciation for the culture as well and then you know I, I think through that i thought that was maybe the gateway into into music with a beat you know so that's how i got into you know hip-hop and stuff as well and when i was when i actually started djing i was a hip-hop dj more than i was a reggae dj until 92 i went straight only into reggae but um, and then a little bit later, as my tastes started growing a little bit further and wider, I got more into, you know, whether it be old R&B or old soul or old jazz or old blues and so on and so forth and just became, you know, a collector. I have, um, he passed away a few years ago, but my, my uh, late uncle uh, was, when he passed away, I think the single largest um, collector of, of uh, records in Europe. I think, uh, it, all, close to 400,000 records. And, um, you know, I have nowhere near that. I have about 5% of of what he had, but his, he spent his entire entire life collecting records and collecting music. And I loved that, right? I really, really enjoyed going through record shops and looking for things that I didn't have and looking for these old sort of hard-to-find records and whether that's, uh, you know, whether that was old R&B, as I said, or old jazz or old blues. And just I really enjoyed that culture around that and that sort of led me into you know uh, hi-fi and you know spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on my systems and not just a dj setup and a dj system but i had a like a hi-fi system that was worth fifty thousand dollars as well i mean every single cent that i ever made went out to went on to music at that point so that was that's kind of how i developed the you know the uh the, the taste for it and uh, it became you know something that was really really important to me over the course of 20 years or so
0: are you still friends with that Jamaican guy?
1: No. No, I don't know don't know where he's at now.
0: Oh. yeah. That's a good, it's a good story, though. Yeah. No, it's definitely yeah, um... he
1: became uh I think he was uh he was a preacher and moved to Philadelphia or something, I think. So it's, I don't know if he's still there. Uh, that was maybe 15 years ago. But him, uh, people uh, making thousands. Yeah, but the um the, the friend that I started DJing with in nineteen ninety eight, I'm still friends with him. So he's. Uh, we started a radio show in 1998. We that radio show still goes. It's operated by two different people now. But the radio show that we started, it's called Level of Vibes, on CGSW uh, 90.9 in Calgary. That still goes. Um, but my my DJ partner now lives in Kingston, Jamaica. Or um, well, my former DJ partner. So shout out to LP, the Loving Popper. Um, yeah, those are good times, man.
0: Has he got a Twitter handle?
1: No, he's not on social.
0: That's cast. Yeah, last two for you and then we'll we'll leave it at that um how did you get into coffee because on one of the podcasts i listened to you were a very late coffee drinker you were a tea guy and then you just like i we had like 40 or something when you drank your first coffee or you were relatively old so how did that come about and where are you now because i know you love your coffee
1: uh, i'm addicted now that's for sure i'm am, i am a proud coffee snob now um I didn't like coffee. I didn't like the smell of coffee. I'd never drank a coffee ever in my life. And I knew I wouldn't like it. So I never was really, you know, drawn towards it. I really liked tea. I was a tea drinker, a green tea drinker. I was at one point in my life, I was going to open a a tea shop, but that's what I wanted to do. Uh, And then I was living with a couple of, um, a couple of people in London, uh, Steve Hooker and Steve Lewis. Uh, Steve Hooker's a Australian. Uh, He was a, olympic champ in 2008 steve lewis was the british record holder in in pole vault both pole vultures but uh, hooker was australian and both of those guys were big big time coffee snobs they had a really expensive um, coffee machine i said man i don't really like coffee but i'm you know i'm just looking i'm kind of jealous of this whole little thing they have right they are just you know the, the whole art of dialing in a, an espresso and dialing in a bean and you know go, you know understanding the roast and understanding the bean and everything around it so, I mean, that's that's pretty cool actually and I got to appreciate that and they said man we're going to get you into coffee so I had a um a flat white one day in 2011 probably so yeah that's pretty good and then uh, the next day they they made me a macchiato so it's you know uh, you know a flat white might be four to five to one ratio of, of milk to espresso and a macchiato was you know two to three to one so i had a macchiato the next day say yeah, yeah still like that that's that's all right that's not that's a lot better than i thought and then the next day i had an espresso just an espresso I said oh, that's, that's actually really digging it so i found that yeah it wasn't coffee that i didn't like it was just crap coffee that i didn't like so immediately i became a, a coffee snob like immediately Right into it, I was all in right from the get-go, and a decade later, I'm just the biggest coffee snob on the planet. It's uh, got a really nice machine, you know, got a really nice grinder. It's uh, it's a big part of my mornings these days. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, I really enjoy it. I really do.
0: Last one for you. Uh, you might have a good answer for this, and if you don't, that's fair enough. But you've heard my podcast before, so you might have thought up with this slightly different i used to ask the dinner question of like if you can if you can invite five people to dinner but i've I've changed it now to if you could spend a week learning from three individuals who would you spend that week with and why so you can pick three people to spend a week with to learn from and interact with
1: robbie you should have asked me that question uh you know over email beforehand because you yeah. that's one of those questions you need to spend some time thinking about
0: well listen honestly uh don't don't answer think about it and then no no i it, we, we, it's, when we do our yeah, part it, two in it, 10 years time you can yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it would be it would be at least one or two philosophers you know it's you know i, I really like uh, i'm i'm reading uh, the second ses, sex the second sex right now for the second time simone de Beauvoir. uh you know i have read quite a bit of 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 her work and, and sartre's work and kind of you know being around you know if i was in paris for a week spending time with the two of them i think that would be pretty cool you know but um, yeah, that's something I need to think about a, little, a, a lot more depth. About what is what I'm most passionate about learning, and then who who are the people that are out there that I could learn those uh, those things from. So maybe yeah. that's on a part two. Yeah. Well,
0: that's, I'll tell you, that's an
1: interesting question.
0: It is a good question. I, I my take on questions like that are I think recency bias plays a lot of p- plays a lot into those questions too. Because you know, well, who who you know, if you were to ask me that now, it's like well. Where am I currently at right now? My mindset, who am I studying? Who are my biggest influences? You know, because yeah. if I was doing like a lot of reading on like Lincoln or Martin Luther King, you would be like, well, yeah, Lincoln or Martin Luther King. But then like, if I was more down, I don't know, like a skill acquisition rabbit hole and I was reading a lot of Keith Davidson's research, I'm going like, go, well, really in skill acquisition. And I might sit there. or if I was reading Sprint stuff like by you or Dan, I'd be like, you know, so I think recency bias plays a lot or has a mm-hmm. lot to do with the answer to those type of questions as well. Like, you know, so. Absolutely um Stu, listen this has been phenomenal and i really appreciate your time and we will say goodbye offline but uh is there anything else you want to add just for listeners maybe just where can they find out more about you and altis and everything you have to offer
1: yeah the best part or the best place is uh go to the website altis.world dot uh, world. all of our courses mentorship programs are all on there uh you reach me on my social channels on twitter at mcmillan one uh instagram um finger mash which was my dj name um but yeah just um i appreciate the conversation it was good to finally get on after six or seven years of of trying to make this happen appreciate your time and it's always always good to chat with you robbie
0: okay and for everyone listening until next time take care be well and stay strong